Hello and welcome back to the Electronic Intifada's live stream for Wednesday, January 17th. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman with my colleagues Asa Winstanley, John Elmer, Tamara Nassar, and Ali Abunima. It's day 103 of Israel's genocide in Gaza. We have a packed show for you today, including analysis on last week's International Court of Justice hearings and conversations with some of our good friends from Gaza. So I'll keep this news report brief. Between Monday and Tuesday afternoons, more than 150 Palestinians were killed and another 320 injured in more than a dozen separate massacres, according to the Palestinian Health Ministry in Gaza, bringing the death toll to more than 24,000 since October 7th, with more than 61,000 Palestinians injured. Thousands more remain under the rubble and on the roads, unable to be rescued or recovered by ambulance or civil defense teams, the health ministry added. Dr. Ashraf Al-Kedra, spokesperson for the health ministry, stated yesterday, stated yesterday that 350,000 chronically ill patients are without their medications across the Gaza Strip and called on international institutions to provide medications for them immediately. Save the Children said that around 1,000 children in Gaza, quote, have lost one or both of their legs, many having them amputated without anesthetic and will require a lifetime of medical care. One in every 100 people in Gaza have been killed and entire neighborhoods have been destroyed. The Palestinian Health Ministry says that 4% of Gaza's population has been killed, wounded or is missing under the rubble of destroyed buildings. Three United Nations agencies warned on Monday that, quote, as the risk of famine grows and more people are exposed to deadly disease outbreaks, a fundamental step change in the flow of humanitarian aid into Gaza is urgently needed. The heads of the World Food Program, UNICEF, and the World Health Organization say that, quote, getting enough supplies into and across Gaza now depends on the opening of new entry routes, more trucks being allowed through border checks each day, fewer restrictions on the movement of humanitarian workers, and guarantees of safety for people accessing and distributing aid. The World Health Organization's Director General implored for unimpeded and safe access to humanitarian aid. Quote, people in Gaza are suffering from a lack of food, water, medicines, and adequate health care. Famine will make an already terrible situation catastrophic because sick people are more likely to succumb to starvation and starving people are more vulnerable to disease, the WHO Director General said. In a statement on Tuesday, Euro-Mediterranean Human Rights Monitor said that, quote, the Israeli army is not only starving Palestinians in the northern Gaza Valley, but has also killed dozens of individuals who tried to receive the meager aid that did arrive there, perpetuating the genocide that Israel has been committing against the people of the Gaza Strip since October 7th. The human rights group added that it has documented shocking testimonies of the Israeli army killing and injuring dozens of Palestinians on January 11th on Al-Rashid Street in the west of Gaza City who were trying to receive humanitarian aid. 
The human rights organization demanded that the involved United Nations agencies be held accountable for their failure to guarantee suitable channels for providing the populace with humanitarian aid. According to the testimonies, quote, Israeli quadcopter drones opened fire on Palestinians who had gathered to receive flour brought by UN trucks. 50 Palestinians were killed and dozens more were injured during the incident. Testimonies gathered by Euromed Monitor indicate that dozens of residents gathered on Al-Rashid Street, which had been devastated by Israeli bulldozers in recent weeks, awaiting the arrival of the trucks carrying flour. The quadcopter drones arrived suddenly, however, and started shooting at the residents. Euromed Monitor emphasized that international humanitarian law strictly prohibits the use of starvation as a weapon of war. As an occupying power, Israel is obligated under international humanitarian law to provide basic needs and protection to the people in Gaza. Also on Tuesday, reports emerged of Israeli forces bombing areas around the Nasser Hospital complex in Khan Yunus in the south into the early hours of this morning. Journalist Bisan Auda recorded this video of herself in that area last night. Hey everyone, this is Bisan from Gaza. I'm still alive. I'm surviving after the day three after 100. But that might be the last day or the last night in Nasser Medical Complex. As the hospital is near to the invasion, uh, the tanks are maybe 40 to 50 meters um, away from us, the soldiers as well. So the situation is really hard. The carpet bombing before this moment was just yani, unbelievable, unbelievable. The bombings are really loud and are so close to us. Uh, the situation is complicated. I'm trying to find any internet connection to tell you what is happening. But Nasser Medical Complex is now near to be invaded. It's the last functioning hospital. I'm trying to find any internet connection so I can tell you what is happening. The carpet bombing, the, the ambulances could not even reach the, um, uh, the injuries or the people were killed and injured because of the carpet bombing in the areas of Watan Samim, Gizan, Najjar, Jortilut, um, the, the west and the south of Khan Yunus refugee camp. Uh, people who are uh, displaced inside the hospital, dozens of thousands are uh, just moving randomly, cannot find any place to go. They try to go to the schools around the hospital or even to uh, the refugee camp itself to find any safe place while the carpet bombing and the uh, bombings engine. Then around 4 o'clock a.m. local time this morning, Bisan recorded this video. Start uh, telling people to boycott, to strike, to stop the economic activities, to do anything to make their voices heard and their needs just matched or applied. It's 4 a.m. Alhamdulillah, it's 4 a.m. We still have two hours to the daylight, to the sunshine. This is so close. 
Bombings are non-stop since 11 p.m. for five hours. Five hours. That was so close. Where are the cars? Did you tell me? Dot. So the light is faster than the sound, so we predict to, to hear a sound sometimes if we uh, saw the sky lighting. Yes, sounds are so close. That was Bisan Auda recording video uh, early this morning in Palestine. As of January 11th, according to the UN Agency for Palestine Refugees, 1.9 million people, or nearly 85% of Gaza's population, were estimated to be internally displaced, including many who have been displaced multiple times as families are forced to move repeatedly in search of safety. Nearly 1.4 million internally displaced persons are sheltering in 154 UN facilities across all five Gaza governorates, including 160,000 in the north of Gaza, in the north and Gaza City. Facilities far exceeding their intended capacity, says the UN. For the fifth consecutive day today, Gaza has been experiencing its seventh and longest telecommunications blackout in three months, and two workers on a mission to repair damaged lines were killed in Khan Yunus on Saturday, reported our colleague Maureen Murphy. Maureen also reported that, quote, in his first video address since November, Qassam Brigade spokesman uh, Abu Abeda said that it showed how a seemingly permanent occupation can become a global pariah. Quote, if justice existed on earth, he said, Israel would be disarmed and its leaders and army put on trial and severely punished. Abu Obeda said that with locally made weapons, Qassam had disabled a thousand military vehicles in a hundred days and that its fighters, quote, had maintained their cohesion during that period. This is, quote, despite the huge disparity in material and military power between the Palestinian resistance and Israel, and despite the massacres perpetrated by Israel in Gaza, he observed. Read more about Abu Obeda's address and the overall humanitarian disaster in Gaza in Maureen's report, Genocide in Gaza Stretches Past 100 Days, on electronicintifada.net. And finally, in the occupied West Bank, Israeli soldiers have been carrying out raids, ransacking homes, and installing new checkpoints. Israeli airstrikes on the city of Tulkarem killed at least four Palestinians and damaged an ambulance. Israeli bulldozers tore up streets in the Nur Hashem's refugee camp inside Tulkarem, destroying critical infrastructure for the community. Night raids and house searches were carried out by Israeli forces in occupied East Jerusalem and in several towns and villages near Ramallah. In Nablus, Al Jazeera reports that, quote, Israeli forces killed three Palestinians in a drone strike. The city faced similar disruptions as in East Jerusalem and Ramallah with tightened security at various checkpoints. Additionally, Israeli settlers attacked the outskirts of Burin village, targeting a civilian's home and vehicle. Israeli soldiers used a man as a human shield during a raid into the town of Dura on Monday. 
Al Jazeera interviewed Baha Abu Ras, a mobile phone shop owner in the town. He said that the soldiers stormed into his shop, took him outside, and made him walk toward the jeeps. One soldier told him that he would be used as a human shield so the youth wouldn't throw stones. For much more news and analysis, visit electronicintifada.net. We're so uh, joined. Uh, we're so honored to be joined by our good friend and comrade Haider Aid. Uh, Haider is a Palestinian activist, author, and professor at Gaza's Al Aqsa University. He's a survivor of the Gaza genocide and is speaking to us live from South Africa, where he and his family have fled. Haider, it's so good and such a, an honor uh, to have you. It's been. Um, it's been just harrowing, uh, you know, trying to be in touch with you when you were in Gaza. Um, and and it's, so it's uh, it's really good to see your face. Thank you so much for coming on the live stream today. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much, Nora. The, the honor is mine. And in fact, uh, you know, I spent the first two months in Gaza and I was worried about Ali Abu Nama because he kept sending me messages every single night and, you know, wanting to know my whereabouts. And if I get late, you know, if I get uh, back late to him, he would really worry. And so I was worried about him. That was my worry at the time. But uh, yeah, seriously speaking, um, these two months, I, I must admit, the worst two months of my life. And I think that every single Gazan can say the same thing. And uh, as you as you, as you mentioned, Nora, I, I came uh, to South Africa uh, with my wife and my two little kids. The worst part of it was the reaction of the kids. And I have a, I have a seven years old daughter and a six year old daughter. Um, and um, so far, I've been displaced four times with them. I mean, the first time um, when at the beginning of the genocide, uh, the end of the first week, uh, I live in the Rimal neighborhood. And uh, I live in a residential tower and I was contacted by an Israeli intelligence um, officer working for the Sheen Beit, and he asked us to evacuate. At the time, we misunderstood because we thought that they wanted to bring down the residential tower itself. Luckily, you know, we learned from our experiences, and because of what happened in previous massacres, we decided to put um, our passports and identity cards and the girls' birth certificate and our marriage certificate in a small bag next to the door of the flat, right from the first day of the massacre, of the genocide. So when he called us, we, um, um, and he was, uh, I mean, he knew my name and he said, we want you to leave and head to the north. And at that time, they were shilling the north, in fact. So they were asking us to leave to an area where we would be definitely killed. Uh, we stayed with our neighbors in the um, opposite building. And um, that was the first time they used a new, um, I don't know whether it was new or old, a new military strategy they called, in, in Arabic, they called Hizam Nari, um, um, a fire belt where they attack the area, you know, airstrikes, constant airstrikes for seven or eight hours. So um, we were about, uh, about seven or eight families trapped in one small corridor uh, until the morning, 
until six o'clock in the morning, uh, inhaling strange gas. And of course, because I used my hand to close my daughter's ears, I lost my hearing. <laughs> yeah, so that was, uh, that was the price because they didn't know how to do that. And you know, they are little kids. So anyway, the following day in the morning, we moved, uh, we found out that the whole neighborhood was flattened down. The whole neighborhood of Rimal was flattened down, was, our flat was uninhabitable, we had absolutely nothing, and I left my car in the garage uh, under the rubble. Um, we moved to the north to, to um, Sheikh Radwan, where I stayed with my brother for three nights, and the same scenario was repeated again. But this time they wanted, you know, the entire population of the Gaza city and the northern part of Gaza, we are talking about 1.1 million people, to move within six or seven hours to the north, uh, to the south. And they posted a map, and that map showed the road on Salah al uh, Road, actually, uh, from the north to Khan Yunis. Now, when I looked at the map, I didn't notice that it did not include Rafah. So the beginning of the map of the road was from uh, the north to Khan Yunus. And so we packed our, you know, all my family, my brother's family. We were about 12 people in a small car. And because everybody was panicking, uh, I needed to be in control. They were expecting me to be in control. So I tried to be in control and I drove without knowing that I was not supposed to reach Rafah, between Khan Yunus and Rafah. And I reached Khan Yunus, and I tell you, the, I mean, the scene, it was a repeat of the Nakba. I mean, you know, hundreds of thousands of people on, on you know, horses, donkeys, trucks, lorries, cars, people walking, halting toddlers. It was, you know, unbelievable, unbelievable. We never thought, we were so naive to believe that, you know, the Israelis wouldn't be able or rather wouldn't be allowed to cross the red line and to repeat the scenario of the Nakba again. Yes, we were naive. We were very naive. I discussed this with uh, Ali and we agreed. I mean, the world would not allow another genocide. I mean, the only or rather the first genocide in the 21st century. Anyway, my, my brother had, while I was driving, he was sitting next to me with his daughter and his son, and about 10 people were sitting at the back. He had um, a minor heart attack when we crossed from, uh, <sighs> and the surprise is that we found out that we were the only people on that road. So, of course, I couldn't go back and I had to accelerate. I had to press very hard on the accelerator until we arrived. Luckily, I don't know how it happened. We were the only people on the Salah al-Din road between Khan Yunus and Rafah. And we could hear the bombing and everybody was panicking and uh, I was trying to help my brother. And then we arrived safely, luckily. Uh, and we stayed with my sister. And the first night we arrived, the Israelis, uh, you know, shelled the house next to my sister's house. And you can't, I, I mean, that was one of the worst night, the second worst night in my life because my kids were screaming and I couldn't do anything. It was dark, of course. 
in the middle of the night. So it was, you know, I don't want to go on talking of the personal experience, but it's, let's use it as a microcosm. And again, and I said this to Ali so many times, my experience is nothing, nothing compared to the sufferings of the tens, hundreds of thousands of Palestinians and Gazans. I've lost 40 of my cousins with their sons, daughters, nieces, direct cousins, first cousins. And I've lost 40. And again, when I compare to other people, entire families. And by the way, in 2014, we were talking about Israel aiming to, um, you know, wipe out entire families. When we, when we said families at the time, we, we meant nuclear families. And now when we say families, we are talking about extended families. We are talking about clans. So when they started targeting the Eids, I mean, it's not only one Eid, it's not one family of the Eids, but, you know, the entire clan. So, so many clans, Al-Astal, Abu Shamala, etc., etc., were wiped out, wiped out. And that was so worrying. And, and, you know, the area where I was staying is not safe, but where can you go? Now... The overwhelming majority of Gazans are staying in Rafah because initially they were asked to move to the south, to the to the middle areas. The middle areas include, you know, the Nusayrat refugee camps, Al Buraj refugee camps, Al Maghazi, and Deir Al Balah. And now they are attacking the middle areas, and people are only left with one option to move to the south. The south is Khanyunis and Rafah. But, but Khan Yunus itself is under heavy bombardment right now. It has been since the beginning, by the way, since the beginning of this genocide. And now more than two thirds of Gazans are staying. You know, I'm in contact with people. I mean, people are sleeping on the street. People are sleeping uh, on the streets and uh, under the trees. Uh, uh, am I losing you? Sorry, I can't see you. Oh, we can still see you. Yeah, because I lost you. I don't know. I can't see you anymore. We, we, can, still, anyway. we can still hear you, Haidar. Yeah, yeah. So, so now, um, you know, the only question before, before I finish, uh, look, it's, uh, it's very traumatic. And uh, it has been a very traumatizing experience uh, for myself, for my family, for my friends, for every uh, single Gazan I know. And... Um, when I was contacted at the beginning, uh, at the beginning of the massacre, look, I've been through all massacres, all the massacres since 2008, 2012, 2014, 2021, and the Great March of Return. And every single time, uh, because I have dual citizenship, the South African embassy in Ramallah, um, would contact me and ask me whether I would want to leave. And every single time I said no. Uh, well, I didn't have kids at the time. Now, this time I lost my house. Um, you know, I lost my name. We lost Gaza. We've lost Gaza. Gaza is gone. Gaza is gone. You know, according to Wall Street reports, it will take... Uh, you know, uh, it will take us to remove, it will take us one year to remove the rubble and to reconstruct Gaza between eight and ten years. I mean, according to reports, reliable reports by, by the Wall Street Journal. 
So when they contacted me at the beginning, the embassy, I mean, they contacted me at the beginning of the massacre, uh, I, you know, myself and Drifka, my wife, we said, no, we are staying with our families. Uh, and, and then after a one month after that, they contacted again. And that was the time when I started seeing serious psychological, uh, I would call them, uh, you know, traumatic changes in my, you know, my kids, my two kids. And that was the time when we had a very serious discussion, myself and my partner, and we decided to take that offer. Um, foreign nationals and uh, dual citizen, or people with dual citizenship, had already started moving. At the beginning, Israel decided to close all the crossings, including the only exit Palestine, uh, Gaza has to the external world, and that is the Rafah crossing. Uh, the Egyptians were threatened by the Israelis, and therefore they decided to close the Rafah crossing. Everybody knows the story. But later on, uh, with some pressure from the colonial West, because they wanted to take their citizens out of Gaza, uh, the, beginning with you know uh, Americans, then Canadians, Germans, etc., South Africans were left to the end because Israel wanted to punish South Africa for the stance taken by the South African government, reducing diplomatic ties, etc. And I can say with very clear, very clear conscience now, and I'm very, I'm one hundred percent sure now that um, had they waited until the ICJ case last week, we would have never been allowed to leave Gaza. Full stop. Impossible. So anyway, I left with my uh, my two kids. And you know the drive between Rafah and uh, uh, Cairo, El Qahira. It's a five-hour drive. It took us twenty-eight hours. And upon arrival in Cairo, we were terribly exhausted, almost fainting. Um, we were um, we stayed for three four hours. Then we were taken to the airport. We flew to Johannesburg via Addis Ababa. And what I, I what I want to tell you is that I'm still feeling very very conflicted, very ex extremely conflicted. And um, I think it has something to do with that. And I'm conscious of that. This is the point. I don't want to deny it. It's the uh, the survivors' uh, guilt complex. And now we have to start a new life. Today was the girls' first day at school. And it's not easy. You know, language, a new environment, a new culture. Luckily, the girls speak English. They know English because I used to communicate with them in English and Fusha Arabi in, 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 in Gaza. Uh, but also, uh, I, I, I came last year with them and decided to, uh, to visit South Africa for three weeks and to expose them, you know, to this multiracial, multicultural environment. So it, it has been a little bit difficult, but not as bad as I expected. And this is why we need to spend more time with them. And of course, you know, finding a flat with the support of our comrades here, it has been easy, I must say that. Uh, I'm trying to find a new job after I retire. That will be in April. Um, so that's my story from beginning to end. I hope I didn't bore you. Haidar, the only thing I can say is Alhamdulillah, I, ca I, I can't begin to uh, fathom, and it, it may well take you years to begin to cope with the levels of trauma and grief and 
the feelings, as you put it to me in a previous conversation of, of, of survivor's guilt. And, um, but I, I have to say, first of all, that uh, while you were in Gaza, um, I was amazed that through all that horror that you experienced, horror that none of us can, except those who've been through it, can relate to, you continued your work. You continued to write. You continued to speak out. I was always relieved and comforted when I saw you sharing articles and comments and analyses on WhatsApp. And I have to tell you that uh, on... Uh, on the day, it was uh, December 5th. I'm looking at the message now. You sent me a message. Marhaban Ali, wasirt littaw junub Afriqiya ba'd mu'anat kabira. Hello, Ali. I just arrived in South Africa after great suffering. And that was on December 5th. And I felt a great sense of relief when I got that message from you. Um, two days later, we would learn that actually on the next day, December 6th, Israel murdered our dear friend Rifat. And uh, that, that, that's something we will never forgive or forget. And uh, we wish he could be here with us in this conversation. And we're just gra grateful and happy to have you here. And we wish you and Rifka and the girls all the best. And we pray night and day that everyone in Gaza, everyone in Gaza will be safe and no one will ever begrudge you that safety. No one will say you should have stayed in that hell if there was a way out. And uh, you are as such, you have been for so many years, Haidar, such an important voice uh, for our people, for our cause, uh, for the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement. And if you allow me to say that with all the trauma that you have been through, I don't think you waited more than a day or two days in South Africa before you continued your work with speeches, with rallies, with media appearances. And we need your voice in this world and we need the whole world to hear it. So thank you, Haidar. And thank you for putting up with all my annoying WhatsApp messages. You had quite enough to deal with. But uh, let, me you, just say, let me just say uh, that uh, I just, coming to uh, the recent, uh, the events of last week at the ICJ, I, I just want to read a sentence or two from a piece you wrote recently for Al Jazeera. You wrote, we Palestinians will not forget the sickening cowardice of the so-called international community, which has allowed and enabled this genocide. We will not forget how the nations of the world stood idly by as Israel's racist leaders openly claimed that we, the indigenous people of Palestine, the Amalek, the foe, that according to the Torah, God ordered the ancient Israelites to commit genocide against. You also wrote, but we will never forget what South Africa did for us. We will not forget how it showed us unwavering support and bravely took a stand for us at the world court when even our own brothers have turned our backs on us in fear. So I just want you to say a little bit more, Haidar, about what it was like, both for you as a Palestinian and a South African, to see this 
what was the mood in South Africa, and uh, what do you hope will come from this? Yeah, well, um, you know, Ali, um, I mean, um, you know very well that there is a context, and that context is, you know, in a way historical. Um, you, if you remember when uh, when Israel decided to redeploy its troops around Gaza, of course, they call it withdrawal. And we call it uh, redeployment, surrounding Gaza and transforming it into uh, into a concentration camp. Um, I don't like to say, uh, you know, the largest open air prison because it's not an open. I don't know what open air prisons uh, are, but I know what concentration camps are because I lived in a concentration camp. So Gaza was a concentration camp. And all of that happened in 2006 when we were asked to head to the polling stations and vote for our representatives. And when I say our representatives, I'm not talking about you, Ali, uh, about Tamara. No, I'm talking about the residents of the Gaza Strip and the West Bank. Because Oslo, the Oslo Accords actually, um, reduced the Palestinian people to only those who live in the Gaza Strip and the West Bank. So people went to the polling station, but not myself. I refused to vote because I don't believe that you can have true democracy under the barrel of the gun of a Zionist soldier. I am opposed to, to elections under occupation and settler colonialism. But anyway, people again, were naive to head to the polling stations, voting, not voting for a party, voting against a policy, against the two-state solution, against the Oslo Accords, against corruption. In other words, they voted against the will of the occupation and against the will of the United States of America, the enablers of occupation, the enablers of genocide. And this is why apartheid Israel in cahoot with reactionary Arab regimes and its enablers and supporters in the colonial West decided to impose this, you know, deadly medieval siege on, on, on the people, on, on Gazans. Now that was, that was the beginning of the context that, I, that I'm referring to. Israel wanted to test the water of the international community. If it carries out a war crime, a crime against humanity, how would the international community react? And this is why in 2006, uh, Israel committed, excuse me, um, you know, the Beit Hanun massacre. The, the international community did absolutely nothing. Then 2008, 2009, for 22 days, committing a horrific crime, killing more than 1,200 civilians, including 400 children. And what was the reaction of the international community? Nothing, nothing. The international community stood idle. And therefore, Israel decided to repeat th the same thing on, in 2012. And then in 2014, killing more than 2,200 people, um, almost um, half of them are children and women. And the international community, and, and when I talk about the international community, I'm talking about official bodies, official bodies of the international community. The international community blamed us, it blamed the victim. In other words, <coughs> the colonial West decided to endorse the Zionist narrative. Regardless of the losses of, you know, um, lives of civilians and children and women. And, and this is why what happened 
is that on the 7th of October, I myself, if you remember, Ali, I mean, people, um, youngsters who grew up, you know, between 2000, I mean, 2006, they were four years old and five years old. They grew up in this extermination camp. They know no other reality, no other world. They did everything, begged the international community, the Arabs, to put an end to this deadly siege. Nothing happened. Thousands of people died as a result of this deadly siege. And therefore, they decided to break the walls of our Warsaw Ghetto, the Gaza Ghetto, the Gaza Ghetto on the 7th of October. And then that was used as an excuse to carry out this ongoing genocide. Now, we expected the international community to do something. War crimes, crimes against humanity, Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, even B'Tselem called Israel an apartheid state, apartheid state. And what is the reaction of the international community? Absolutely nothing. As I'm speaking to you right now, a, a Palestinian child is being killed. By the time we finish this interview, between 15 and 20 Palestinian children in Gaza will be dead. Definitely. These are the statistics. And I think because of the joint history and the common history of struggle against apartheid and against settler colonialism, South Africa has decided to say enough is enough. The South African government, of course, is, you know, is a democratically elected government. Civil society organizations in South Africa, uh, our comrades in the solidarity movements here, you have solidarity movements, the BDS coalition, exerted pressure. And I, I know for years they have been exerting pressure on the South African government to cut its diplomatic ties with uh, apartheid Israel until it complies with international law. I mean, there is nothing wrong with that. This is the call made by the overwhelming majority of Palestinian civil society, including, you know, nationalist, uh, nationalist forces in Palestine. Now, this I has been going on. Yes, sorry. I don't uh, go ahead. You, you, feel, no, feel free I, to interrupt yeah, me. No, I don't mean to interrupt you. I don't want sure, to interrupt sure. you. But because he has limited time, we want sure. to bring in Ahmed Abu Fool. Yes, who sure. is uh, an international lawyer. He works with the Palestinian human rights group, Al-Haq. And uh, we learned just before the show that uh, you two are actually uh, neighbors in Gaza, your families. And that <laughs> proves our theory now that has been proven over the last few months that literally everyone in Gaza knows everyone else, which, of course, amplifies and magnifies the horror and the tragedy because so many people are losing friends and family. So, Ahmed, we're so happy to have you back. Uh, and we had you back, uh, uh, we had you on a few weeks ago. Uh, we're going to get into some questions for, for, for you and for Haidar about the proceedings. But before that, let's just show this, these uh, two very short clips from uh, the, the proceedings. We're going to start uh, with... Uh, just a few seconds of uh, Blinne Nechroli, the Irish barrister who was part of the South African team. Uh, so let, let's just take a look at that. The international community continues to fail the Palestinian people, despite the overt, dehumanizing, genocidal rhetoric by Israeli governmental and military officials matched by the Israeli army's actions on the ground. 
despite the horror of the genocide against the Palestinian people being live-streamed from Gaza to our mobile phones, computers, and television screens. The first genocide in history where its victims are broadcasting their own destruction in real time in the desperate, so far vain hope that the world might do something. Yeah, and, and of course, for those of us who watched the whole presentation, it was, it was just an incredibly powerful and well put together presentation. But I'm, I'm going to ask both of you, but starting uh, with you, Ahmed, as an international lawyer, what was your impression of the proceedings? And uh, yeah, what, what did you what did you see last week? Uh, first of all, thank you for, for having me, uh, Ali, and thank you for the Electronic Intifada for the important journalistic work that you do in the age of, of uh, complicity of certain media outlets around the world. Uh, and there, um, not only complicity in, in genocide, I think also rationalization of the crimes committed against the Palestinians. I'm happy to see that uh, Haider is okay now, and, and if you allow me a little bit uh, before I, I answer your question. Um, when he was speaking, um, I, I couldn't help it but seeing images. Every place he mentioned, I know I spent my whole life uh, there. We literally were two houses away. We were in the same neighborhood. His, his brother was my English teacher. I owe him a lot uh, that I am able to speak uh, uh, English. Um, and and um, the whole family actually was... Uh, was an important family in the in the neighborhood. I mean, Haider himself, a lot of young people uh, uh, owe him a lot. He's he's a great professor, and he taught a lot, like uh, like Rifat, who has left an impression on all of us and, and so many people. So I felt I need uh, I needed to say that for uh, for the people. Thank you, Ahmed. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you, thank you. And and answering your question, I think the 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 presentation of of, of South Africa. It was emotional for all of us as Palestinians. Mm. And the reason to that is that for the first time, uh, although it wasn't Palestinians who were speaking, they were speaking in Palestinian language, Palestinian analysis, Palestinian narration. And for the first time, I, uh, we could hear our own narrative uh, uh, being uh, presented at the International Court of Justice. Uh, and if you allow me something important to note here in such cases, of course, this is a court of, of law, but this is also a court of public opinion. For the first time, uh, the world has seen uh, um, the South African ar argument representing what the Palestinians uh, are, have been narrating for decades, and the Israeli arguments, how Israel is justifying, so to say, its, its uh, atrocities. Uh, um, and it was very, very emotional to watch, uh, to watch this. I think they have, uh, legally speaking now, I think they, they have um, a, a very good case um, it was a very um, well-argued, well-structured, and I think you don't need to be a lawyer to watch the, uh, um, uh, the pleading and, and, and see that. Um, I think the importance of, uh, um, of this case is not only uh, um, from a legal perspective, I think also public opinion. Uh, the word so, uh, Israel for what it is, in a way the mask is off, not only uh, from Israel, you know, uh, also its allies. Uh, um, they can they can no longer claim that this is quote unquote the only democracy in the Middle East, nor can they uh, claim to be the protectors of human rights, because um, evidently they don't care about human rights uh, unless it's politically convenient to use it against 
their foes, uh, but not uh, against their allies. Um, on the on the arguments uh, themselves, I think South Africa provided a very strong case, uh, um, um, providing the court for what it needs for this particular procedure. Now we're talking about provisional measures. The court does not need to rule on the merits. All the need or all is needed from the court is to decide that there's jurisdiction prima facie, so adverse plans, meaning that the court is probably would have uh, um, uh, jurisdiction on the matter, that there are serious allegations of, uh, of genocide, and South Africa provided a very good case. The, the, the question remains which of the provisional measures the court would rule on, um, and I think there, there is um, a room of, of, of legal arguments the court might, might not uh, uh, rule in all provisional measures, but in my opinion, most of these provisional measures are, uh, if I can describe them this way, a law-hanging fruit. So, for example, the um, uh, allowing humanitarian aid is something that is not controversial, preservation of evidence or allowing investigative uh, bodies, that is something the court uh, would most probably rule on. Perhaps the only um, um, matter that the court will have to look into a little bit deeper is the cessation of, of hostilities. And there, uh, Israel used uh, uh, an argument. I wouldn't be um, naive to say that the Israeli uh, uh, case was very weak. Uh, I agree it appeared weak for, for the public, but there was certain arguments that uh, the court might have to stop and, and contemplate. I'm not saying that um, uh, uh, these arguments are necessarily winning, but they might tone down uh, what the court orders. Uh, in particular in relation to the cessation of hostilities. Uh, um, so the court might, uh, um, in a way, adjust this demand or uh, order it differently or not order it at all. But what's interesting, Ali, that uh, Israel used an argument that it's always using, and that is the body of law called international humanitarian law. Uh, this body of law is um, a body of international law that governs uh, armed conflicts, so governs occupation, a situation that was not supposed to uh, last that long, was supposed to be temporarily, and this is not new. Israel has for long uh, used the rules of international humanitarian law to justify its uh, violations, because this body of law, by virtue, provide for the occupying power to um, uh, treat its population and the population of the occupied, um, um, of the occupied territory uh, differently. It has used this to justify its apartheid, but again, uh, these rules were not intended for a situation that long. Here, the, Israel argued that because it's conducting uh, um, a, military, um, a military operation against the Palestinian resistance, and this is in, in the context of an armed conflict, it does not necessarily mean uh, that there is a, a genocide. Although I don't think this, this argument holds a solid uh, ground simply because they're not mutually exclusive. You, you can have, uh, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so as I understand it, at this point, the South Africans don't have to prove that there is genocide. They just have to prove that there is a plausible case that there could be genocide so that the court would impose these so-called provisional measures, which is like an injunction saying freeze things where they are until we decide the case that uh, might take years. But nonetheless, the South Africans did, and of course, key to the crime of genocide is intent, that, uh, that genocide is not just acts like killing and uh, 
uh, murder and maiming and, and expelling and so on, but with the intent to destroy people in whole or in part. The, the, the South Africans did nonetheless lay out a case that Israel intends genocide. And we have a very uh, short clip of one of the South African bar barristers, uh, Tembeka Ungukatobi, who Many is months. making that case. Let's take a quick look at this short clip and get, uh, get your uh, views on it. Penasat have repeatedly called for Gaza to be wiped out, flattened, erased, and crushed on all its inhabitants. They have deplored anyone feeling sorry for the uninvolved Gazans, asserting repeatedly that there are no uninvolved, that there are no innocents in Gaza, that the killers of the women and children should not be separated from the citizens of Gaza, and that the children of Gaza have brought this upon themselves, and that there should be one sentence for everyone there, death. Finally, the lawmakers have called for mercilessly bombing from the air, with some advocating for the use of nuclear doomsday weapons, and a Nakba that will overshadow the Nakba of 48. The Prime Minister's genocidal speech has gained ground among some elements of civil society. A famous singer has repeated Mr. Netanyahu's Amalek no. reference, stating that Gaza must be wiped out and be destroyed with... So, actually, let me ask you, Haidar, because you are in Gaza, uh, how the experience you described for us a short time ago matches very precisely what the Israelis said they intended for Gaza, particularly the horrifying impact on your children and all children in Gaza. Do you see in the description that we just heard from uh, Tembeka the uh, what Israeli leaders wanted? Did that match the reality in Gaza? Oh, you're muted, Haider. Oh. There we go. Can you hear me? Yes. Yeah. Oh, sorry, sorry about that. Um, look, Ali, I've read the document, um, excellent 84-page uh, document uh, written by the you know top legal minds here in South Africa, supported by some Palestinians, by the way. And I think, um, uh, you know, again, going back to the context, I mean, the, the unprecedented number of war crimes, crimes against humanity, et cetera, et cetera, that went by, you know, uh, unpunished with full impunity uh, has definitely affected the credibility of international law in the eyes of the Palestinians in general and the eyes of the Gazans in particular. Um, and I think, I, I strongly believe the moment I heard about the case that what what would be at stake is not only Gaza, it's the future of global justice. You know, this is a defining moment in the history of humanity. Some people think that I'm exaggerating. Some people don't like what I'm saying. But look, I mean, three months, you know, constant bombing, airstrikes, shelling, etc., etc., killing 1.5 to 2 percent of an entire population, I mean, 
that's a genocide and somebody has to say something. We were waiting for our Arab brothers, our Arab brothers, for our Muslim brothers to do something. That hasn't happened. And I think what South Africa did came to our ears. I mean, it, it, it came like music to our ears. This is the first time a country uh, manages to cross the red line, as I said. And that red line is that you are taking Israel to the ICC, accusing it, uh, sorry, ICJ, accusing it of, you know, uh, committing a genocide. Now, that means you are taking the entire West. That means you are trying a history of colonialism. That means you are putting the United States of America and imperialism on trial. And this is why the colonial West is, is, is not happy. As for the Palestinians of Gaza, to answer your question, Ali, and I can tell you, um, at the beginning, I think, you know, uh, having conversations with uh, relatives and families and on, at the beginning, they didn't get it. Right? How many times do we have, you know, to take Israel to? They didn't differentiate, for example, between the ICC and ICJ. But with the proceedings and hearing the defense using the Palestinian narrative, the Minister of Justice said we have to, to go back to what happened in 1948 in order to understand what is happening now. And I tell you, every single Palestinian I know is extremely happy with what is happening. And one other reason is, you know, the, the, the joint struggle against apartheid, apartheid Israel, um, apartheid South Africa. But also we need to clarify, I mean, because I have been mentioning the word apartheid, apartheid. And apartheid is only one form of oppression used by apartheid, by apartheid Israel against the Palestinians. You know, Israel is using a multi-tiered system of oppression. I remember against Palestinians, I remember when we met, uh, uh, Desmond Tutu and my friend comrade here, Ronnie Cassas here, both of them actually told me what you are going through in, and that was before the genocide, by the way, before the, the, the current genocide. What you are witnessing in Palestine is far, far worse than what, than what we had to deal with, uh, you know, under apartheid, in the heydays of apartheid. Um, South Africans talked about, you know, the four pillars of the struggle. The most important pillar of the struggle at the end of the 80s for them was international solidarity. And this is what we are saying. We Palestinians, especially Gazans now under the bombardment of apartheid Israel, we want, you know, those sentiments of international solidarity to be translated into action. And we believe that South Africa has begun that process. Yeah. yeah. That's, 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 uh, uh, if I can, uh, uh, I think that's a key point. I mean, when I watched it, I'm also skeptical of these things because we've been disappointed so many times, but the power of it and the fact that the world was watching was really, I, I think, galvanizing and took our struggle in the international arena to another level. Ahmed, I have a question for you. But first, let's take a look at these two very short clips. They're very short, I promise, from the Israeli presentation. 
the first one, uh, they're both of Tal Becker, who is an Israeli uh, official who uh, was one of the Isra Israeli team. Let's go to that first can I, clip. Can, I, he's talking can I just it. pop in here some for a moment? I don't yeah. feel like listening to the Israeli presentation, Ali. Okay, is that okay? We, the, that's yeah. fine. It, it was a very yeah, short yeah. I really don't feel don't, like that. I mean, uh, unless the, you yeah, wanted to listen to Hitler, you wanted no, to listen no, to no, the no, racist of the American South, I, I really no, don't think we no, need no, to give no, them a we'll platform. Skip, I'm sure you understand we'll, my point. We'll <laughs> skip. We'll skip it. That's fine. I mean, we know uh, what they was, said. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know what they said. It was exactly. We'll skip it. But let me ask you, Ahmed. You already addressed one of the questions I had for you, which is what might the court do? So you, what I heard from you, I think, is that it's not necessarily a slam dunk. They might not necessarily agree to everything South Africa asked for. And we shouldn't underestimate the effect of some of the uh, Israeli arguments, even though the presentation was largely garbage. Mm -hmm. We'll save that discussion for another. And by the way, full of many of the lies that we have debunked, including about uh, <clears throat> children being tied up and burned and mass rapes and the other lies we've talked about. What I want to ask you, Ahmed, is, and this relates to what you said, Haidar, about the colonial West, is but there are some third countries that are intervening shamelessly on the side of Israel, most notably Germany, intervening on behalf of a party accused of genocide. I want to get your reaction to that, Ahmed, and also what impact do you think that might have on the case? Should be we, we be worried about Germany's intervention? Um, no, I, I don't think, to be honest, not at all. But if you allow me, before answering your, questions, your question, I will answer it. I think it's a very good question. And it's important to note, although like the, the um, genocidal statements are very apparent in this case and very important, um, South Africa's case, first and foremost, relied on the ways in which Israel was conducting the military operation. Then the uh, uh, um, uh, genocidal statements. So the first argument is actually on the ways in which Israel is conducting the, the military operation and how these genocidal statements have been trickled down and translated into actions in, uh, on the ground and how the, the, um, uh, the, the, the soldiers have received this, this uh, instructions and implemented it. Um, so I just wanted to, to clarify this point. South Africa anticipated very well the Israeli arguments. I think uh, it wasn't hard for them to anticipate that. And, and they, um, they addressed it beforehand. On Germany's intervention, I don't think we need to be uh, very worried. The only party that needs to be worried is Germany itself, if, uh, about its reputation, if there is any left of it, to be honest. Because um, if this action is showing us, uh, while South Africa is learning from history and teaching uh, schooling the whole world, especially the West, on what true leadership is like, Germany is uh, proving once again that it never learns from its shameful uh, history. And I see no, no appropriate response better than uh, that of the presidency of Namibia, schooling uh, uh, Germany, telling them you're technically telling them you're in no place uh, to make such a statement. Uh, but if you allow me, even from a legal perspective, Germany intervened in many cases uh, saying the exact opposite of what it would say uh, about genocide in Israel, uh, including in Myanmar. There are specific arguments 
that Germany has put forward that cannot walk back. The court would look at these arguments and look at what, what Germany would have to do. I understand that this is politically motivated. This is what the political leaders want. But I feel sorry for German lawyers who would want to work on this because it will be an impossible mission or a very difficult uh, uh, job to come up with a new arguments that you craft them only to serve the purpose in this case in support of Israel, where you said the exact opposite in other situations. Uh, so I think the court might even, and the court can do that, might tell Germany that uh, we won't accept your intervention at all. You presented your views on genocide in other cases, and you don't need to make them in every case. You told us your interpretation of the law. Thank you. Sit aside. It's also a possibility. Or Germany might be allowed to intervene, and it won't have any value, and we have a precedent to that. Uh, uh, Germany intervened in the um, uh, proceeding, uh, proceeding on the scope of the International Criminal Court's territorial jurisdiction, saying that Palestine is not a state and doesn't qualify as a state for the purposes of the Rome Statute, and to be honest, made a fool of themselves. It was a political mm -hmm. uh, uh, submission. It didn't have, uh, in my view, any legal uh, uh, mm -hmm. arguments, and it was set aside. It was of no value uh, uh, whatsoever. I think this is a record of history showing us that Germany uh, haven't learned a thing of its shameful uh, history, and it should know better. It should look to the global south, to the true leadership in South Africa, in Namibia, and other states, and it should address its shameful past and its uh, atrocities, atrocities against African people, especially in, in Namibia, before it dares to speak uh, about genocide. The history of the colonial West as a whole is that of genocide. Genocide is inherent in, uh, in uh, Western uh, settler colonial ideologies. Ahmed, uh, I know you have to go, so we'll let you go. Uh, also, Haidar, uh, both of you, uh, we'd love to have you back on as soon as possible. There's so much more to talk about in terms of South Africa's historic role at the ICJ uh, hearings and, um, and, and, and the implications um, you know, for Palestinians and for people under the thumb of, of Western imperialist uh, oppression uh, in general. Um, so, Ahmed, uh, you're an interna international legal expert at Al-Haq. Uh, Haider, you are a writer, scholar, uh, educator, and, and, and comrade of ours. Uh, thank you both so much for being with us on the election. Thank you both so much, Haider. We're so happy to see you, and I, I look forward to seeing you in, in the flesh soon. Uh, yeah. Inshallah, somewhere. Inshallah, inshallah. inshallah. Thank inshallah. you so much. Thank you, Nora. Thank, thank you, Ali. Thank and thank you, you Ahmad. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It was thank good you seeing both. you. Hi there. I know. Shukran. Bye -bye. Shukran. Bye. <laughs> thank you both. Um, and uh, in a few minutes, we will go to John for military analysis as usual. But we also wanted to bring on another good friend of ours and contributor, longtime contributor to the Electronic Intifada, Shahid uh, Abu Salama joining us from uh, London. Shahid, it's Hi. so good to see you, Habibti. Um, I know that uh, you have been just uh, under so much ex extraordinary pressure uh, trying to, to figure out your family situation. There is, some of them are still stuck in Gaza, um, trying to survive um, the, the incessant bombing. Can you give us a sense of, of what your family is going through right now sure first thank you for your continued uh, amazing work on behalf of the palestinians and the oppressed 
And thank you for doing every effort possible to amplify our voices um, and to debunk Israeli lies and uh, the complicity of Western media in normalizing this genocide. And I was also very happy to see uh, my educator, Dr. Haider Aid. I was, uh, I was so happy to see him smiling, like, mm. wow. Yeah. Absolutely amazing. And, and it is people like him, really, and like my mom, who has also survived more than two months of uh, genocide that amaze me with their strength and their ability to continue to smile. And this smile is such a bliss for me, to be honest. I've, I've, I've been the strongest around my family during this period. And since I came back to this country, London, the uh, the start of the of of, the, of all world's problems probably. <laughs> um, I I went downhill even even more to be honest. Despite the continuing um, apparent huge gap between the people and the uh, government, we still see um, the cries of millions. Uh, around the world in the streets calling for ceasefire is undermined and our lives is undermined and and it's if we, we feel as if we don't matter um i can there's a lot happened since i last spoke to you and i was last time oh my god like it was, it was also the last time I saw Rifat speaking in his flesh life here with, with us. Jadwe, so, uh, you know, when I see you, even though I can hear the pain in your voice, I also feel reassurance because your, your presence is reassurance for us and your voice is such a powerful voice and you haven't stopped since this began as difficult as it is you haven't stopped speaking out and i know the kind of um, hatred you face online uh, even before this genocide and this is something we reported on the electronic intifada you faced so much vitriol and hate from the zionist lobby and the israel lobby in the uk because of your advocacy so i i just want to take this opportunity to say that we see the strength in you as well and you give us the you give us the strength back and uh, uh thank you Shah. Thank, thank you for for that thank you all but really like whatever like all our sacrifices feel i don't i mean like it's hard to put things in words these days because we see we see the best of us are being assassinated and and killed in cold bloods and families wiped out carpet bombing non-stop displacement non-stop and my family i never expected this but really like my family was one of those that at, at times like this, we would be offering support for others. Mm. 
and other families would be relying to us, would be hosting families uh, fleeing other way, uh, you know, the heavily bombarded areas. And now my family is being displaced from, from one place to the other. So now they've left Al-Nusayrat refugee camp because now Al-Nusayrat is a, a death zone. And they fled to Rafah in a journey like of horrors, pitched a tent, and they've been surviving under this tent in freezing weather for nearly three weeks now. And, and this is nothing even comparable, like nothing incomparable with others, other families who have many of their loved ones missing or arrested or killed, buried, not even like some, some people, so many families are still staying on top of their, uh, the ruins of their own homes, knowing that their loved ones are still buried under and there's no way of getting them out. I mean, th these stories that we hear, we're to this day for four days now, we've been disconnected from uh, my family in the South and we have like minimal information about them that we get every now and again when when they manage to uh, steal some internet somehow, like get a connection after going through great oaths to just tell us that we are alive, we are still alive, but we survived again by chance. This is every day for everyone in Gaza. Every day they survive by chance and every day is, is about uh, struggling to, to find the basics, to feed uh, the little ones, the children, to find enough water and food. And, uh, and, and they go through great oats to even find uh, wood to make fire so they cook or, um, or do laundry or everything is, is such a great struggle. My dad is 72 years old and he's terribly sick. And, and uh, my dad, uh, you, you know, he, he's very healthy and athletic. He's uh, had like such a healthy routine since uh, the beginning of his life or let's say his second birth after he was released from Israeli jails in 1985 swap deal and and he's been taking pride in his health and now and now imagine he can hardly walk 50 meters he can hardly walk 50 meters and he can find no medicine anywhere my brother my youngest brother who's a father of two He's super sick and he went to a field hospital in Gaza, saw people without limbs queuing and he felt ashamed and went back because all he has is severe flu. And, and my niece, my five month old niece, who was born just a month and a half before this genocide started, is struggling to uh, breastfeed from her mother. And we know of the consequences of such 
prolonged trauma on uh, breastfeeding mothers and pregnant mothers. And, and, and the case has been also presented in the South African case uh, against Israel's genocide, that Israel is, is even is deliberately targeting the reproductive health of Palestinian women. So all of these horrors combined, and God, can I can I take some time to to speak about my family in the north? Please. So, uh, God, the horrors are just endless. So, if you remember the the short uh, surviving uh, humanitarian pose that we had. At that time, we managed to uh, get some connection back with the, with the North, with our families in the North, um, my uncles and aunties and all that. And on our behalf, they went and had a check onto our home and take everything that they could eat to help their starving children. And, uh, and it's through them that we learned of the bombardment of our home. But still then, there were still some features to the house, like the house was bombed, uh, two shells in, in the uh, uh, fourth and fifth floor and uh, another in the, in the first floor. The first floor was by far the, the, the especially my mom's room was like completely destroyed, but you could see some features, some memories that are still there. The, um, like the mirrors with the embroidered uh, uh, frames, the, my, my grandparents, the survivors of, uh, of 1948 Nakba, they, their, their pictures was there. And then, and then um, three weeks ago, something like that, um, we uh, we receive uh, the news. Actually, I learned first from live coverage because we're most of the time when we can't uh, get hold of our families because of uh, communications completely down. Then the only news we have. Oh, the only channel we have with Gaza is through live coverage, through people like Bissan, like uh, Wael, uh, uh, Mu'min, um, all those people who have become like family members to us after all this time. Anyways, uh, so I learned through live coverage that Israel has been like doing this systematic um, um, setting fire to uh, homes in Asaftawi Street. And I heard Asaftawi Street and I was like thinking my heart dropped to the ground. I was thinking, may God protect our home because like, yes, it is destroyed, but there's, there is, we cling to hope that if the people, if my family in the North, in the South, displaced in the South now, will have the opportunity to go back, at least they will have a place to shelter them from rain, from like, th there is something could be done, yeah? But now through my family in the North, we know um, we received images of our building completely pitch black. The fire has eaten everything. All our memories is destroyed. And this like, it's been 
very triggering, really. I mean, we, we know we've lost lives and it, it feels sometimes that it's not worth speaking of homes in in the in the scale of loss of human loss that we're suffering but but also the loss of a home is such a um a big issue that we shouldn't take lightly mm-hmm. and now there there are there are the the great majority really of gaza population they have no place to go to even if the war ends today yeah so like what what is the world is waiting for watching this and more more to tell you about my my family in the north my uncles and, and aunties they've been going through like another level of of uh, a nightmarish reality like um hardly uh having even if they had one meal a day they would be saying alhamdulillah thanks to god if they had one meal they they would share everything with the uncles and aunties and like hundreds of them they would share a loaf of bread or a couple they uh, the, the old sacrifice the uh, their their bites to uh, the little ones so they could go to bed in hunger just so the the little ones are fed the um my two oldest uncles who were born before nakba and were child survivors of nakba my uncle khadr and my uncle uh, muhammad the two of them were detained amongst hundreds of people in the north and they've disappeared and we've seen we've seen the degrade the denigration of the palestinians and the humiliation and it's it's horrific to imagine also my 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 uncles were who are older than the state of israel being stripped of their dignity humiliated by soldiers who are barely 18 19 uh, years old and have no respect for human life no no respect for the elderly nothing like i was horrified to to learn of this of this news and to this day my un- my uncles they were disappeared and uh, arrested for days and to this day they don't speak about it they they say let's focus on surviving through this day and tomorrow, there's no point of telling you about, about what we've been through. But they've seen horrors, they can't speak about it. I don't know what to say, to be honest. Like, there's like no tears left to shed. There's no pleas left to make. Like what else is is needed to happen? Like, are they are they waiting for our complete annihilation? Because they are annihilating Gaza as as we speak. As we speak, I mean, this is something that you tweeted the other other day. Shahd really struck me because 
we read the press reports from Israel, I mean, the claims from Israel and even the United States, they say that the war is winding down or Israel is withdrawing units from here and there, which which may be true, but they haven't stopped or slowed down the killing. Uh, I mean, every day it's 150, 160, 170, 200 people, and every one of those people is precious to uh, to 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 everyone in Gaza, to all of us, and it's not slowing down. I mean, can you imagine now? Imagine if there was, heaven forbid, a terrorist attack that killed a hundred people in London or a hundred people in 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 Brussels. I mean. Those attacks happened before, unfortunately, in the past, and it was considered a national trauma for months, if not years. And we're talking about that on a daily basis for three months, and on top of everything else that's happening that you described. I and and this is why uh, we've seen uh, we saw this report last week from Oxfam that said that this is the bloodiest conflict in recent history in terms of the daily average death toll. And uh, I think we have those numbers that we can show that that on average since this genocide started, Israel has killed 250 people a day. And mind you, they're talking about the people killed by bombs and bullets and shells. They're not talking about the people dying from hunger, from thirst, from cold, from chronic illness that can't be treated, the thousands of cancer patients who have no treatment in Gaza now, the thousands of uh, people with diabetes or who need dialysis or the premature babies uh, left to die in the hospitals. So we're talking about 250 people a day. And the next closest was Syria, where it was 96 people a day on average. Of course, that's utterly horrifying, but it's not even half of the death toll in Gaza and Ukraine, 44 people a day. Still a horrifying toll. Of course, these are averages, but look at how the West talked about, there are the numbers there. Gaza, 250 people a day, according to Oxfam. Syria, 96. Sudan, 51. Iraq, 51. Ukraine, 44. Uh, Afghanistan, 24. And Yemen, 16 people a day. Every one of those tolls is horrifying. But then Gaza, 250 people a day. This is a genocide. And uh, Shad, our, our, all our love goes out to you and to all your family and to everyone in Gaza. And we thank you for your strength and for telling these stories because it, you shouldn't have to bear your, your pain in the open and tell these things. But in a world that denies, or at least a lot of the world, the so-called West that denies this genocide, you and all the other people in Gaza and from Gaza who are giving this testimony are making it impossible for all those people to say, we didn't know, we had no idea, if only we knew. No, you know. This is the best documented genocide in history. Can I say something? Before I go, thank you so much. I think they know, and and right now, I don't think that the world is is uh, ignorant. Uh, we're not in 1948. Um, we're not even in the times when uh, the Iraq 
war happened at that time still there wasn't uh, much internet and social media and whatnot we're at different times and the information is uh, accessible it's available and there has been advances in so many studies settler colonial studies and la 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 uh, it's uh, it's crystal clear it's crystal clear but we live in a world in a world order that uh, has uh, designated some people as worthy and others as unworthy and um, and we have to all fight this we have to all fight this hierarchy of lives hierarchy of human lives uh, of, of uh, human rights um, and take responsibility for being part of this status quo that is um, normalizing these un unequal structures that allow a country like the UK to appear, uh, pose on behalf of humanity, offering settlements uh, to uh, Hong Kong uh, people displaced from Hong Kong and, and from Ukraine. But once when it came to Palestinians, and by the way, I am I am British since uh, since June. I thought for once this British this British citizenship could save my family, but they don't care about my family because they're Palestinians. My direct family is Palestinian, and I'm the only one you, uh, British. If I was Ukrainian, I would have got a different statement. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and a different treatment. I got, I, I reached out to my MP, a Labour MP, a Labour MP, who uh, ignored my emails, multiple emails I sent her. She ignored them first, and then she sent an email, a generic email, it turns out, most likely a generic email that she sent to all of her constant constituents that are opposing uh, genocide and calling for ceasefire because she made no note of my family and my requests upon her to save my family. She, she took no notice of this and she just responded to me with a letter recycling all Israeli uh, talking lines and repeating the government's um, um, stance. Mm. Although the, the government policies are on the side of the Palestinians. And this is something that the UK government, the UK people need to understand. The policies as they exist, we have policies in place that recognize Gaza as an occupied, uh, not only Gaza, but also Gaza and West Bank as, as occupied, regardless of Israel uh, recognizing itself as an occupying power or not. Israel can say whatever, it's an occupying power. And they and their own policies recognize this. And those that are speaking on behalf of UK government, uh, Rishi Sunak and David Cameron, and uh, the despicable Zionist, self-proclaimed Zionist, uh, St uh, Keir Starmer. Keir Starmer. Uh, Keir Starmer. He's, um, he's a lawyer, apparently. A lawyer, and and he doesn't see any genocidal 
things going on in Gaza. Selective. Sort of Zionism yeah. without qualification. Yeah. Shahid, people in the chat are asking you to name the MP. One second, Harriet. Yeah? Harriet Harman. Harriet Harman, right. Harriet Harman, who who was actually yeah, former minister and formerly the uh the 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 temporary yeah. leader of the Labour Party at one point, yeah. the sort of the yeah. standard leader. So that that's good to know. People should, people uh, in the UK should uh, should be writing to Harriet Harman and letting her know what they think of her uh, her her dismissive and dehumanizing treatment of Shet and probably other Palestinian constituents yeah. who are. Yeah. yeah, it's simply racism. I mean, like as you said, Shahid, like if 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 you'd been um, Ukrainian, there's no way they would have just ignored your email like that, and they would have, you know, your family would have been allowed to exactly seek shelter and about, about emergency situations. We are dealing literally with a, a status like yeah. a situation of life and death. We don't have the luxury of time. Right. We don't. So. Yeah. Thank you all for listening and thank you for joining my campaign against my MP, hoping that <laughs> humanity will be shaken a bit. Yeah, keep us posted on that, of course, Shahid. <laughs> uh, Shahid Abu Salama, you're a writer, educator, scholar, uh, activist living in London. We appreciate you. We're so grateful for you and um, we'll have you back on very soon. Thank you. Thank you, thank you so much and Please. so much thank love you. to you, Shahid. Thank Stay you. Strong. Take care. Me too. Thank you. Uh, okay. Well, Can I just show you before we before we move <laughs> to the next segment. Yeah. Just listening to Shahid, it's so and to Haider and to Ahmed, mm -hmm. it's 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 all so much, and it, we're so grateful to them because, you know, it's it's they're going through. I mean, we're all going through, but especially them going through this unbelievable trauma and we're grateful to them for being willing to talk about it yeah. and i i you know they shouldn't have to talk about right. it in, in right. this way but at the same time we we want the world to know and that that's the situation palestinians have always been in we're, we're always having to explain and always having to to justify our own existence but just before we move to the next thing i wanted to show something i wish i'd shown it when 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 shahid was on but uh, i've mentioned before that in 2013 i visited gaza and one of the things we did when we were there we went to the agricultural area east of khan yunis and we met the farmers there and this was in may they were harvesting the wheat and I grabbed some of the wheat mm. that they had just harvested and put it in my pocket and brought it home. And I've kept it in this jar for 10 years and I keep it here on the desk. And it's a reminder. And I often think of those farmers. I have no idea what happened to them or where they are now or if they're dead or alive. But I do have these seeds from Gaza and uh, they, they grew out of the soil of Gaza and maybe one day. Uh, we'll be able to replant them there. Anyway, just something I keep on my desk. That's beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Ali. Um, and yes, so many seeds uh, that will be planted. 
Absolutely. And, and uh, some of the people who are sowing those seeds, uh, John is going to talk about uh, in terms of seeds of resistance, in terms of seeds of defiance and in defense of Palestinians. John, you're up. This is my seeds from Shajaya. This hmm. is the lavender plant from Shajaya that I keep uh, above my desk. So Mm. Uh, just wanted to grab that when Ali showed that. That's perfect. Uh, unscripted. Wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So as as ever, it's always difficult to follow um, those immense human stories. Um, but I'm going to do it and we're going to follow it up with um, the resistance, which is um, while all of this uh, carnage is going on, of course, Israel's uh, objective is to attack civilians and to attack hospitals and schools. Um, and their military objectives are very, very thin. And I think we're going to see in this next uh, half an hour of videos uh, what that looks like on the ground. And um, just to say, I, I organize these videos. All of these videos have happened since you last saw us. Um, I'm not picking the best of the entire war. This is what's happened in the days since we last saw you. And week. also, they're organized by location. Um, in part because that's how the Kassam Brigades fight. They're broken down like a military order um, into regional battalions, and those battalions fight um, uh, on their terrain, in their areas, in the areas that they know. Um, and so I think just for the historical record, it's important to say that we, we're following each of these battalions in their battles uh, in the defense of Gaza. So um, maybe if you want to show the map tomorrow, we, we've we talked about a lot of places. Um, we've talked about a lot of places, uh, location places in this tiny little place uh, of Gaza, 25 miles long. Um, we're going to start in the north, Beit Hanun, Beit Lahia, that you can see up at the top of the map. I'll just go through the map quickly for people who aren't uh, as familiar with the terrain. So you have the north, Beit Lahia and Beit Hanun. Um, then you see that darkened area. That's all Gaza City. And there's fighting and battalions all throughout Gaza City. Sheikh Radwan and Tufa and Shajaiya. Um, and then you see that open space. That open space is the farmland um, that Ali talked about. There's farmland along the eastern edge. Um, in the middle camps, you see Barrage there in the built up area where you see the dark in the middle of the map, right in the skinny center. Um, that's the middle camps that Haider was talking about. Those are the, the middle refugee camps. And because of the way that Israel has set up uh, their occupation of the Gaza Strip since the 1950s, it was to cut these areas off. And so what they're doing right now is uh, basically a battle plan that has existed in Israel for more than 70 years, when we saw that grid map uh, of where the areas they're telling people to live, uh, to move that aren't safe areas, those were actually maps that Ariel Sharon used in the 1970s um, to police Gaza. Um, you can see in the south there, Khan Yunus, um, what Haider was talking about, about Khan Yunus, is that Gush Katif was the settlement that you can see all along the coast there. So Khan Yunus, an entire generation, two generations of people grew up in Khan Yunus looking at the sea, but never able to access it because of the settlements. Um, and that's the reality of the Gaza Strip. So we're going to start in the north here with these first videos tomorrow. We're going to just show people, uh, because the battle in the north, Israel says the battle in the north is over. 
Um, they say that uh, they've dismantled Qassam as a military framework, which is clearly just an absurd claim. Because what we're watching here is fighters literally on the next block uh, observing Israeli soldiers on the ground in the Northwest. Um, the fighters clearly still have command and control in this area. And in the next part of this clip, you're going to see them. Um, they're attacking that ground force there um, within one block. So we're talking street by street um, fighting. In this shot, we're going to, Kassam is going to take us first person as if we're there through the streets uh, of Beit Lahia. Um, and you can see that the, the fighting force still exists. You can see them here signaling to each other, professional fighters, disciplined fighters. We're not even into the guerrilla part of the army uh, at this point. We're seeing well-trained fighters um, creeping up here. Um, you're going to see a tank around this corner. Um, and he's calling and signaling to the fighters because the fighters have control of these streets. Um, although there's drones in the air um, and tanks on the ground, the Israelis have nothing like control in this area. Um, and so you're going to witness here um, an ambush of this tank where we have the spotter, the shooter, and the cameraman all being able to deploy to the same operation. And as we've seen, these information operations, having these camera crews operating on the ground with the fighters has given us a unique view into this fight. But as Abu Beda and Abu Hamza, the Sarai al-Quds spokesperson, have said, obviously, these what we're seeing on video is not all of the operations. All of the units don't have cameramen embedded with them. Um, but we can see here, um, again, able to use the houses, able to use the destroyed buildings um, to target the armored vehicles in the north and showing us uh, evidence of the burning vehicles um, from these strikes. Um, and this is the north where, where Israel says they've dismantled Qassam as a military framework, whatever that means, and that they're fighting pockets of resistance now. So they're trying to wrap up this war um, with no military objectives achieved. Um, and and that's, that's in the north. And now we move on to the next one um, tomorrow, number two here. This is a tunnel ambush. Um, it, we know that they have hundreds of, Qassam has hundreds of kilometers of tunnels that have to be uh, combated. And we've heard the false story about them flooding it with water. We haven't heard anything about that in a month since they told us this story. But what we're looking here is we're looking at a, a CCTV camera footage of watching uh, the Israeli Special Forces unit. This is a Yahalom unit, an anti-tunnels unit. And we're watching somebody here watching on a CCTV camera, talking to fighters above ground, preparing the ambush here. Um, you can see the dogs moving through. The dog is part of the special forces dog. And the guy in the CCTV is controlling by telephone fighters above and below ground. He's saying they're coming, they're coming. And they're setting this ambush properly above the ground. There's still fighters above the ground, what we're watching here, and fighters below ground. So there's fighters in three different places here. You're watching on CCTV, above ground, and below ground. Now we're watching from inside the tunnel, the commander's able to watch them dangle this camera down to try to see if they can go into this tunnel. Yesterday in the New York Times, um, 
the Israeli and American intelligence officials revised the amount of kilometers of tunnels that they believe. They've been saying that there's 500 kilometers of tunnels. And yesterday, they're saying there's now 725. So they've added 50% of the tunnels. Um, and what we're seeing here is this commander on CCTV footage control, telling his fighters where to go to set off an ambush in a tunnel. And this is just a small uh, sampling of what would have. Let's watch it around again. So we see the drone come in with the infantry unit. The drone is checking out to see if they can see anything. But because but that's an Israeli watched, drone, Israeli drone. drone. Yeah. So they can see the Israelis are coming in and seeing that they can't see anybody because they're being watched on CCTV footage with a closed line, um, a commander. Uh, commanding his troops who are both above and below ground. So the drones giving them footage outside to say that nobody's there. He says, leave the water tank lid open. He's setting up the cam. He says, set up the camouflage, create it like there's the, like the lid is showing a bit. They're trying to get the, the exact luring of the troops. And they're saying now they've entered the room now go downstairs. So the fighters are upstairs at that moment. And the commander on the CCTV footage is telling them, okay, move out of the room now. The soldiers are coming. So now they move from the above level to the fighters on the below ground level. And we're going to pause it here with three, six, eight soldiers that they're showing right there that are going to be a part of this tunnel operation. Um, this is them scoping out the tunnel that's with the an camera. israeli camera coming that's down the israeli camera coming down okay. being seen by the palestinian camera um and he's saying so leave there's still people above ground at this point there that's the the flashlight of the israeli troops coming over to see if they can go down in this tunnel um and the commander above the commander above says deal with them do it and you see the fighters emerge from the tunnel and this is, I believe, what we're seeing here is the first time we have seen in this three-plus-month war shots in anger fired underground. Um, so you're meeting the ambush under the ground and then detonating the tunnel. And this kind of an operation gives you, first of all, the understanding that the command and control of this group is clearly uh, not collapsed. Whatever the opposite of that is, is having people at three different locations uh, plotting your uh, tunnel ambush um, and you can see that no matter how much the israelis spend on their gear on their drones no matter how many forces they're sending into these areas basically Kassam, with the most basic tools a cctv footage a commander watching on a computer screen is organizing his and troops. That, do you think that commander is above ground or underground, John? He's in a third location. I, he's in a third location. So I don't even know if he's on. He doesn't have to be on site there. As long as he's getting that video feed, we could be seeing something here where he has multiple video feeds. Um, and then they're communicating, clearly communicating on a closed telephone line. So as these soldiers with all their jamming equipment and all their technology are coming in, the Palestinians are literally on the telephone commanding. Look at it. You can see the line there on his hand. They're literally on the telephone commanding their forces above ground and below ground to carry out this ambush. And this it's kind a of a footage, good thing they didn't get rid of their landlines then like the rest of us. 
Yeah, well, they closed their landlines, and then the Israelis have tried for a decade to get into this system, and maybe there'll be more time on other shows to talk about a couple of those raids were spectacular counterintelligence operations by the Qassam Brigades to prevent the Israelis from planting bugs in this closed network. And so we've seen the fruits of that throughout this war. We saw that footage from Shujaia, where we had the fighters coordinating multiple sides of the ambush on the telephone. Um, so this closed line is above and below ground and clearly being used to great effect, whatever the opposite of collapsing your command and control John, uh, is. a question for you. At the end of that clip, you see the you see the guys going down the tunnel and they're firing. Those are the Palestinian fighters. And then they presumably go back. And then you see smoke or dust coming in the tunnel, which suggests there was an explosion uh, that presumably the Palestinians set off. Previously, you talked about the dangers of underground combat, particularly setting off an explosion in the context of a narrow underground tunnel where oxygen is limited, where probably the effects of an explosion would be amplified because basically you're like in a gun barrel. What 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 are we seeing there? How could how is it possible to set up explosions in tunnels and only harm the Israelis and not harm the resistance fighters? I mean, what what can you tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, some size of the explosion, whether you're carrying out a catastrophic tunnel collapse operation or just blowing up that one entrance. But like I said, this is the first time that I believe that we've seen shots in anger underground because even your guns, the acoustics of the guns are crazy. Um, everything that you know above ground doesn't work underground. So all of their systems don't work. Um, and that's why these Yahalom units have been training to try to do this kind of operation. And if we were seeing um, Israeli military successes, we would see footage like this every day because there's hundreds of kilometers of these tunnels and their own people are in these tunnels. So presumably um, they're attempting to find their people in these tunnels. And we haven't seen anything at all like that. This is the first one. And I'm showing you this one because it's the first one that we've seen. Uh, of this way. Some of the ways that they can detonate, we know that they use a door system, that their doors are a very important part of the structure of the tunnels. Um, so we saw in that footage, just from that, that was a CCTV camera footage underground, and we could see the fighters advance and then withdraw. So it's possible they're withdrawing back behind a door and then closing that door to seal off the blast. Um, and that's something that they can do all throughout the network, because as the Israeli captives who were released told us, the, the, the network is a spider web. Um, it's not straight lines. It's not a grid. Um, and so they're able to close off these whole sectors by closing these steel doors, which are also blast proof doors, which help keep the structure against these airstrikes from above, which is also why the airstrikes from above don't destroy this tunnel network. The Israelis know that. They said that before the war, that there's no way you can get at these tunnels that um, we know that are as, as deep as 80 and 100 meters. It's not even close to being affected by what's happening on the surface. So that detailed tunnel operation that we saw being coordinated from three different places is taking place somewhere that Israel is saying uh, Kassam has been dismantled. Completely absurd um, claims. But let's go to the next one. This is Gaza City 
Um, and this is a remarkable uh, situation in Gaza. Which ones? Oh no, sorry. This is one more from uh, this is one more from Sheikh Radwan. This was yesterday in Sheikh Radwan, the same area where the tunnel operation took place. Now we're seeing here a combination attack. We see the troop carrier, and that's a Shawaz, the uh, explosively formed penetrator bomb being remotely detonated. See, you can see the the Yassin hasn't been fired yet. So they're they're now doing complex attacks where they're setting off. Uh, a, a Shawaz device against the tank and then hitting it with, uh, and this is then hitting it with a Yassin, which is this, and they're showing here dog tags from the soldiers from the burning armored vehicle that they have just hit. Um, and so we're seeing these videos that don't match Israeli death tolls. Their casualty counts in the last two weeks, basically since the new year, they basically aren't recording them they're they're dripping them out dribs and drabs again we know that there's is situations like this where there's six and eight soldiers that's a troop carrier there's 12 soldiers in that troop carrier and they're showing 10 dog tags so how did they get 10 dog tags uh out of a troop carrier um where's the rest of the force where's the evacuation force um the numbers of israel's dead are clearly a lie and just like october 7th eventually these these statistics will come out and the truth will come out so this was also uh in sheikh radwan and now let's go to the next one tomorrow number three um sorry, number four this is an israeli drone their flagship drone that's their flagship tank and that's them inside the tank watching the drone footage this is their brand new tank they're showing us here the active protection system the trophy system that they say protects all their tanks now we're seeing the palestinian fighters coming using an attack tunnel here to come up right beside the tank and blow it up without the active protection you can see it moving there it moves but it doesn't detonate so the israelis vaunted technology here's their drone tens of millions of dollars. This is their flagship drone, the Hermes 900. That's their flagship tank, the Mer Merkava. They're showing that they get 24-7 live uh, intelligence, and they have, on top of their tanks, a secondary protection system besides their armor. Palestinians using an attack tunnel and surveillance to negate and defeat this tens of millions of dollars of Israeli technology. Um, that they is that about. is that tank uh, behind like a a, a sand berm or a, yeah? Or so a... they are using their bulldozers oh, yeah. to create sand berms around all of their vehicles because they can't trust anywhere that they sit. But here the Palestinians are monitoring this, and so because of that surveillance on the ground, they're able to get to the exact spot where it doesn't matter if you made a berm. It doesn't matter if you have active protection systems. And those hits are happening on the turret of the tank. So there's armor uh, or there's ammunition inside there that you're seeing going off. There's eight people in that tank being hit. And then look at this footage. Where's this footage from? This is Israeli soldiers in the back of their tanks. Where did well, which get means, that Well, that, that means they got the mobile. It's proof that they got the uh, mobile phones or the cameras from the Israeli soldiers along with the dog tags. And there's, along with uh, the dog tags. And we'll show so captured we can, here. Uh, yeah. We can assume that they have this kind of footage. They're literally showing us right here live drone camera footage. The drones that fly that we hear constantly in the background of every single report are filming 
and sending them live to their phones on this operation exactly where to go. And they're being defeated by Palestinians who are in their own neighborhood using their own weapons that they built themselves um, and targeting these tens of millions of dollar products, drones, tanks, active protection systems. This trophy system is something that Israel wants to sell to the whole world for them to put on their tanks. And what we're seeing here is 1980s technology, um, landlines, um, Soviet era uh, anti-tank weapons being used by the Palestinians to defeat this tens of millions, billions, right? We saw them on October 7th defeat a billion dollar fence um, and completely collapse the southern, uh, the, the Gaza division and capture their brigade and division commanders. And the entire day, we know, uh, October 7th, the Israelis had no idea what was going on all day because Qassam knocked out these systems. So that's just footage from Gaza City that shows you that. The connection from the drone to get the 24-hour footage, uh, live footage, and it doesn't matter. Qassam is still defeating them using their, um, using their technology um, and their systems and their fighting uh, battle plan, which is defeating the Israelis who only can target schools, um, blow up schools and hospitals and make TikTok videos of arresting elderly men uh, who are who are sheltering in a United Nations school during a genocide. History is not going to reflect well on 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 this at all. And the heroism of the Palestinian resistance, both both the civilians and their steadfastness, but also their military, um, that all Palestinians after this war are going to be proud of in a way. Um, that Israel, I just don't think, is calculating. Um, Abu Ubaidah said it. They're creating a fighter in every house, an enemy in every house with what they're doing, um, just with what Israel's doing. But they're also creating <clears throat> fighters because people in Palestine are seeing their national army um, successfully defeating um, the American uh, you know, proxy, the Israelis. So I think on a lot of these fronts, it's there's there's um, there's a lot to be seen that's not shown uh, in the Western media about the resistance to this genocide. Yeah, can I just chime in quickly? The uh, just to to mention the um, for uh, viewers and listeners, um, the uh, the Hermes nine hundred drone that you mentioned is of course manufactured by Elbit Systems, the Israeli arms manufacturer that has been a target of um uh camp for campaigners for anti-arms trade campaigners such as uh palestine action and it was the hermes 450 which was actually involved in some of the um, so-called friendly fire incidents on and soon after october 7th which which killed israelis yeah, it's their flagship drone. It's a it's a surveillance drone and it's an attack drone that fires um, Hellfire missiles. Um, and it's a murderous device and it's constantly in the air um, ready to strike. And yeah, the parts are built um, outside of Israel as part of this um, uh, supply chain, um, imperial supply chain that we've seen bringing... Uh, airlifts of weapons multiple times a day, C-130 cargo ships dumping weapons that are then dropped on the Palestinians. Um, yeah, let's go to number six tomorrow and, and we'll watch this because uh, the Palestinians have drones too. So this is Palestinian drone footage. 
Palestinian surveillance footage. Um, they're able to monitor these Israeli positions um, and they're able to rig up um, a complex operation, firing mortars from multiple different places um, based on the drone footage that they're showing um, their own fighters. So the Palestinians have this capacity too. Like, look at that shot. They have overview with that drone of the Israeli uh, position. So I just wanted to throw that one in there just so that we could see that the, the Palestinians have that capacity too. Let's go to number seven tomorrow. And, and <clears throat> again, this is Palestinians moving through. Um, they're able to move through the buildings in their own neighborhoods. We're seeing tactical gear coming out, which makes sense as they're defending these areas. This is a an ambush right there where we saw last video where they, uh, Israelis poke holes in the wall that's the Palestinians coming and shooting at those sniper walls. This is a thermobaric um, uh, warhead being fired. And if you notice here, they're on the beach. This is an area that the Israelis said that they conquered eight weeks ago and that there was no access to. And now we're seeing soldiers in a window, classic Israeli move, along the beach. So we see now Palestinians having uh, having the ability to strike along the beach, which is something we haven't seen for months. The longer sure. the war goes on, the more capacity the resistance has, not the less. And then here we go um, for this thing, Ali, what we were talking before. These are the captured gear. They captured a drone. Um, they captured guns. These are parts of the web, uh, of the armored vehicles that are blown off. So we can that imagine like that door. they're getting that, cameras that looks, from this. Yeah, yeah. Um, John, I mean, that that same video, I assume it's going to loop around again. But when you see them firing the RPG at the distant apartment building from another apartment building, these are unguided missiles. How, I mean, I, I don't know how much experience you've had firing RPGs, John. <laughs> but, I mean, this takes a lot of skill, doesn't it, to, to hit a window that now uh, to look i mean look at that that is a long distance uh, that takes a lot of skill and training they clearly trained and there's no doubt about it we're seeing we see occasional misses but what what what's really stark in these videos is that they're hitting they're hitting this window watch this window um from that distance they're hitting it um, and that's a thermobaric warhead. That soldier is killed in action and he's not being reported in the Israeli casualties. So at some point, this guy and his family are going to be told um, that he's dead. But we're not hearing about that right now because the Israelis believe that they that they can um, lie their way to a victory by pretending that they don't have any casualties to keep the morale of their conscripted army high while they're, you know, decimating their economy um, by having all of these, uh, you know, not very clearly not very good soldiers um, getting defeated clearly by well-trained, disciplined Palestinian guerrilla fighters who have clearly trained for years with these weapons um, and are skilled. So here we see them monitoring where the sniper position is, and that's the Palestinians shooting in the hole. You can see them shooting inside the sniper hole. So even the Israeli sniper positions are exposed. This is, again, that's the beach. That's the area that the Israelis were driving jeeps and taking journalists uh, on, on tours of. Um, now we're seeing in January... Um, that the Palestinians are able to access that area and fight, which is why the Israelis are pulling out. 
They want no part of staying in this. They want to have a fake victory um, and say they've wrapped up the war in the north. And they're saying that they're almost wrapped up um, the war in the south as well, which is just clearly not true. Let's let's move to Khan Yunus. We can see here with the captured gear that that's where they're getting um, their helmet cam footage from. Here we see in Khan Yunus, we see an attack tunnel being able to get within, I don't know, what is that, 20 meters of a tank? That's too close for the active protection system to engage. So that's a hit on that tank. There's a tank crew in there that now needs to be evacuated um, somehow. And the Israelis have talked about 2,000 helicopter evacuations. Um, but you're seeing, uh, look at that foot, look at the close, the proximity that the Palestinian tunnels are getting their fighters up. And that's hitting a Puma engineering vehicle. That's actually a vehicle looking for tunnels. And then you see the piece of the warhead fly over top of them. Um, the, the proximity that they're able to get from these attack tunnels is just a clue of what exists when the Israelis say that there's 725 kilometers of these tunnels. Um, I, I believe that we're barely scratching the surface here of the capacity of the resistance because these tunnels go all throughout the Gaza Strip. So anywhere these forces are, and you can see in the Israeli um, field reports that they're talking about circumstances where dozens of fighters are emerging from tunnels and fighting them from all different directions at the same time. Um, and we'll get these testimonies from the Israelis. I'm sure we'll hear from the breaking the silence uh, people after the war who who will kill people all through the war and then after the war say they regretted it. Sure um, and they'll crying. tell us the stories of it, right? They'll tell us what it was like, how scary it was to have fighters coming up all around them and that they never know where uh, anybody is because they're fighting these well, already There are already, already quotes in the Israeli media from uh, soldiers who are, you know, just quoted... Um, anonymously saying that they're like ghosts and we don't know where they come from that's already out there let's go to number 10 tomorrow so now we have here one of the reasons um one of the reasons why they're ghosts sorry this is going to be 11 it's okay let's do this one um this is a um a, a shot at an israeli um minesweeper okay here we go so there we go. Soldier in a window being monitored from across uh, literally the street. And that's another killed in action that we haven't seen reported. Um, and now if you watch in the bottom center, we're getting another hand delivery, another precision guided missile, a Palestinian emerging from a tunnel in the tall grass and placing a Yassin warhead underneath the turret of the tank, which will explode beside the, uh, the ammunition in the top turret of that tank so we're seeing palestinians again hand delivering explosives um monitoring from literally across the hall like across the alleyway and hitting these soldiers that are confirmed kills there's no way that's a survivable situation and there's no report of that from the israelis there again we're looking at hand delivering it pointing the Yassin charge. So here he's using a Yassin warhead that's not part of the, the RPG. Um, and so they're able to use their, their Gaza-built munitions in multiple different ways. And we've seen just in this footage that I've shown you, multiple different warheads that they've created that are appropriate for the different circumstances. We thought we saw the thermobaric 
uh, warhead be used against the troops in the build in the buildings. We've seen the fragmentation warhead be used against troops out outside so that um, uh, pieces of shrapnel fly off and hit them. Um, and then the Yassin 105 that we've seen battling tanks um, this this entire war. Um, and, and as Abu Ubaidah said and Nora quoted in the beginning, um, they've just the Qassam brigades alone have targeted 1,000 vehicles. Um, so even if you take a miss percentage and you can come up with whatever number you want as your miss percentage, you're still talking about significant numbers uh, of, of tanks being put out of commission um, by these weapons built by the Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. And we haven't found in Israeli field reports anything like finding weapons factories on the scale that would uh, answer how 13,000 rockets have been fired during this war, how there's enough Yassin warheads to supply their troops all over from the north to the south of the Gaza Strip, and apparently no shortage of these weapons uh, three plus months into the war. Um, it, it's, I mean, looking at that footage, I mean, it's very difficult to to look at it just purely objectively but i mean i don't think anyone seeing that last video in particular um you know can objectively say that that didn't take courage to just walk up to that tank and put that um rocket shell just on it at point black range incredible amount yeah, you're of never going to defeat that you're never going to defeat that courage but they also just have military acumen training preparation skill um to go with the with the courage that we see um i mean we see the courage all through the society look at the videos we see of these children who have no food no water no medicine put on these trail of tears marches to the south um, look at the courage that they've handled that situation with, um, you know, Shahad talking about her, her family, um, el you know, elderly people, how the courage that they've had, people who are older than the state of Israel themselves, um, the courage uh, in, uh, of the resistance um, and of the civilian population in the Gaza Strip in the face of this genocide, it's something history is going to record. Um, and generations, people will talk about this. It's inspiring movements all over the world, let alone inspiring generations of Palestinians who will refuse to be defeated by the Israelis after knowing that they can do this, after seeing that they can build with their own hands a resistance movement um, that can attack Israel um, successfully. Let's do the barrage uh, one, just the last one tomorrow, number 12. Um, this is footage that has audio from it. Again, we take out the audio because... Um, we don't want to have these videos uh, flagged, um, but this is a joint operation that you're seeing. That's a is Islamic Jihad fighter uh, fighting that. Um, but what we're seeing here is fighters come out of a tunnel um, in Barrage where they're fighting in the middle camps. Um, they come around the corner here and you're going to spot the back of a Namur troop carrier. And he's right there. He comes out the tunnel within spitting distance of the troop carrier fires hits the back door the weakest spot of the tank um, and the most uh, dangerous spot to hit he says i hit him and he says this is from the fighters of uh, the barrage battalion and he says this is for uh, ibrahim uh, maktama who is was a founder of qasam um, ayman nofel who was uh, a brigade um, uh, commander killed in the north 
um, in October of the war, and for Marwan Issa, who's the operations commander of the Kassam Brigades. And he says, the cowards, if we could pause it, if we get the shot tomorrow where we can see that there's the second armored troop carrier right beside it, you can see in that shot with that arrow, uh, that's a second Namur troop carrier. So there's 12 soldiers under the triangle, and then there's 12 soldiers under that arrow. The fighter comes out and says, this is from the Barrage Battalion for, and he names three critical commanders in the Kassam Brigades, says not one coward among them. And then he says, look at that. Look at these guys, the guys right beside them. They're not even going to come out of their tank and help the guys, their own troops. They're not going to come out and help those guys that are right beside them. And that's what they say in the audio. And if people want to check this audio, you can check them on my Twitter feed. I, I put these videos up with the audio um, that you can listen. Um, but you can see the fighters communicating, both communicating with their people, saying that this is a gift from the Barrage Battalion, but also the fighters have a history and understanding of who the leaders in the movement are, who the founders who were assassinated um, um, were and and what their role is in this battle and now we're seeing a helmet so maybe there was a, a camera attached to that helmet and that's how we're getting the helmet cam footage um, and that's just part of the information operations that Kassam does they don't tell us that maybe they'll tell us after in the documentaries um, but it's sufficient for them to lay the seed that that's probably what's happening and that video uh, those two videos to finish on those two videos um, just incredible videos to see three months into the war, that the capacity and qualitative uh, nature of the operations is increasing, not decreasing. They're not being degraded, like the Israelis are saying. We're seeing full command and control. We're seeing fighters with skill. And we're seeing fighters who have a, a, hist a revolutionary history that understand who the leaders were um, and give them shout outs. And Abu Ubaidah did that too in his speech. He gave shout outs um, to important leaders of other factions, of Islamic Jihad, of the Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigades. Um, uh, he did that in the last uh, speech as well. So the Palestinians have an opportunity here to fight together, unified, um, and to put aside the division uh, in the Palestinian national struggle, um, especially under the leadership of Yahya Sinwar, who wants to put the division of, this, uh, of the Palestinians aside and have a national unity government, um, which is something that while the Israelis are trying to claim these military victories, I think we have to remember that there's going to be a day where thousands of Palestinian prisoners are released uh, from Israeli jails. And that's going to be a specter of victory um, that's far greater than any of these lies that Israel tells the New York Times that they just uh, they they just parrot uh, Israeli uh, military propaganda shrouded in censors um, and with a blackout um, where we haven't gotten information from Gaza in two days now uh, yeah. because Israel doesn't allow any information to come out. Uh, but the fighters, they can still communicate and they can still hit Israel uh, in these ways. And we're able to put together a video package like this every single week with just videos from the previous week. Um, and so I think the the resistance is still strong. If, if anything, uh, it, it's stronger than it was. Yeah. Uh, before we wrap, uh, Ali, I know that you have uh, one last, uh, yeah, I, I just wanted to, I mean, no. that, that's, that, it's so, 
It is. I see people in the comments saying it's inspiring. It is inspiring. Yeah. Palestinians have the right to resist, and to see them resisting so courageously and effectively gives people hope. And the Israelis, they, you know, the, the Israelis respond by bombing civilians, murdering elderly people, murdering babies, because they're not fighting these fighters on the ground. Um, but what I wanted to, I just, one of the articles that appears in Haaretz, I think it's this morning, well, at least I read it this morning, and this is by Yossi Melman, who is a well-known Israeli journalist. He's written many books about the Mossad and things like that. He's got close ties to the intelligence services. And in his column, he says that Israel's leaders want the war to go on and on because uh the moment it stops, they're toast politically, basically, they're gone. So they have personal political interests in continuing it. That's a point many people have made inside and outside Israel. That's not the most interesting thing about this article. Tamara, if you can go to the next uh, slide or the next clip here, what he talks about, uh, Yossi Melman, and, he, and, and the thing I want to stress here is Melman is reflecting a growing trend within Israel. This isn't. This article is not a one-off. Uh, it's part of a genre. And he's saying it's time for Israel to cut its losses. And he's saying here that the, the concern that Yav Gallant, the defense minister, Herzi Halevi, the chief of staff, uh, and others, uh, they have an interest in continued combat to save them, their own skills. But what he says is that they are they're, they're like gamblers who have already lost at the roulette table and just think that if they keep throwing more money in, something will come out. So he says, apart from the need to salve their tormented consciousness, there is the unstated assumption that the longer the military campaign lasts, the more military accomplishments there will be, which would mitigate the scope of their failures and permit them to emerge as partial successes. But I think what John is showing us is that the longer they stay in Gaza, the more losses they suffer and the more clear their failure becomes. And that, so that's just a very important point that is now emerging in Israel. And let's look at the next bit, uh, Tamara, because... In the article, Melman says, yes, the IDF can claim some tactical successes. They've killed some Hamas fighters. They've found a few tunnels. And I think he even exaggerates those successes for the sake of argument. But then he says, such limited achievements are tactical in any event. Strategically, Israel is losing the war. It has not managed, as Netanyahu and Gallant had promised, to bring about the collapse of Hamas and is now facing in a war of attrition statements made both before and during the war that Israel can fight simultaneously on multiple fronts are being proven to be vain boasting. Israel is perceived as a weak country with 150,000 of its citizens internally displaced refugees. So this makes the connection between what we're seeing in the videos on the battlefield and the reality that is now being perceived in Israel. And so articles like this, and I stress it's not the only one, uh, are in a, in a sense corroborating 
what we're seeing in the Qassam videos. They're helping us to understand that these videos are not sort of a decontextualized snapshot, but are actually painting a reality that is being reflected in Israel in a growing sense of failure and defeat. Mm-hmm. And 150,000 displaced is about a quarter of the actual number that are displaced. They're lying about that number too. The number of villages and settlements that are evacuated right now, the number of people who say they won't go home um, because of the rocket fire. And right after Israel said that they had co- uh, com- they concluded the war in the north, um, the Qassam Brigades fired rockets from the north on Tel Aviv, on uh, Israeli uh, military concentrations in the Gaza envelope. Um, so if they promise to never go home, then the war in the north is over, in the north of Gaza is over, and they're not going home. And if, if they're talking about a war in the actual north, in the north of Palestine with Hezbollah, um, Hezbollah just released a video yesterday with Nasrallah, uh, mocking the Israelis, saying like you're you're going to send these tired, defeated, traumatized soldiers that you're calling out of Gaza, and you're going to send them to to Lebanon to fight us. And he basically like laughs and says, you know, like what Bush we welcome say, them, bring yeah. yeah, we welcome them, bring <laughs> yeah. it on, yeah. Right? Like it's absurd propaganda. Yeah. The depth of the propaganda is is absurd. It is. John, as always, uh, we appreciate all the work that you put into that and uh, with Tamara to line up those videos and and um, deeply analyze them for us. I, I know that our viewers and listeners are always incredibly appreciative of that as well. Um, and uh, yeah, just before we go, you know, we are... Uh, supported 100% by the contributions of our viewers and our listeners and our readers. And I just want to say we're so grateful uh, for all of the support, uh, financial and otherwise, um, that we've been receiving. We still need, uh, you know, to pay our brave writers in Gaza and to make these kinds of live streams possible. so uh, thank you again. If you're thinking about contributing, if you forgot to contribute before the new year, that's fine. You can always head over to the Electronic Intifada and uh, and donate. We have a little donate now button just below the the, the header there on electronicintifada.net. Um, let's, uh, yeah, uh, Asa, some comments uh, before we go. And while Asa is putting up some comments, or before that, I just want to give a shout out, if we can scroll down, uh, Tamara, um, that uh, Tamara Nassar, and thank you, Tamara, of, uh, again, for being the brilliant director. But Tamara, if you can just show the podcast episode that you and Asa did. Yes. There's a fantastic interview. Uh, it's on the YouTube channel. You can also find it at the website. Tamara Nassar and Asa interviewed Amal Saad, who is a world-leading scholar uh, on Hezbollah, her knowledge of Hezbollah is second to none, and they discussed the situation on the Northern Front and what would happen if there were a full-scale war between Israel and Hezbollah. Would Israel be able to defeat Hezbollah? I don't know if there's that much suspense to that answer, but <laughs> but I'm not. I'm I'm going to say go go watch and listen to this interview because it is so full of incredible insight about the history of the resistance in Lebanon, what's happening now, 
how the Northern Front is supporting the uh, resistance in Gaza, and then, of course, what would happen if this war were to escalate. So uh, if, you, if, you, if you still want more, if two-plus hours wasn't enough, there's even more for you there. Don't miss it. It's brilliant. It is brilliant. And yeah, thank and, you. And of course, all the other articles, let's just go back to the front page. Again, I'm just stressing this for our new viewers. We are we are alive, we are doing this live stream, but we are part of the this online publication where you have you th if you think the live stream is good, you'll love the website because that's the the same quality of reporting is what you get there fantastic analysis and of course our many writers on the ground in gaza who we are so grateful to and are thinking of that piece at the top of the page there is by abu bakir abid he is in gaza uh, right now and he is still writing and it's just absolutely incredible the conditions. You heard from Haidar, the conditions in Gaza. You heard from Shad, and those are the same conditions that Abu Bakr, Abid, and the other writers who we're publishing every day are working under, and they are still working to get the, the word out. So please share, uh, email these articles around, post them on social media, let the world know so no one can say we did not know. Absolutely. All right. Well, that does it on behalf of uh, all of us at the Electronic Intifada. Tamara, thank you so much, uh, our director and producer behind the scenes and, and in front of the camera as well. Definitely go check out her and Asa's interview with Amal. Um, go to uh, the Electronic Intifada's podcast stream on all the platforms. Uh, and John, Asa, Ali, everyone at EI, thank you again. We'll see you next time. Thank you.